Hey everyone, before we get to the meat of the podcast, I just want to tell you that I'm going to be a featured guest at Roll20Con. What is Roll20Con? Well, it's an online convention run by my favorite virtual table. It's going to be run for 24 hours starting on June 3rd, and it doesn't have just me. James D'Amato, Adam Coble, Nolan Jones, Anna Prosser-Robinson, Margaret Crone, and so many other RPG superstars are going to be there. It's a con you can go to without leaving your computer. You don't even need to put on pants. You can get all the details at Roll20Con.net. All right, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a baller rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been listening to the Tome Show and paying nothing for it, but you want to help support us, go give us a rating. It takes less than a minute of your time. We do shout-outs to listeners who give us a great rating here on the air. I'll read at least one new five-star rating verbatim each episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. It's a family D&D news podcast. Here are the words of Serious Harms with a review entitled Great Review of Winter Fantasy. Oh, see? It's a review about a review. That's That's very, very meta. That's the kind of quality reviews you can find on our podcast page. The review says, I love the review of Winter Fantasy Convention. I think I will have to add that convention onto the annual family budgeted convention circuit. Well, thank you, Sirius. If you want to hear a bunch of awesome people talk about Winter Fantasy, check out Roundtable 107 at thetomeshow.com. And don't forget to leave us a great review on iTunes. You'll get a shout out and you can make me say anything. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. It's really easy. Just go to thetomeshow.com, find the banners for Amazon or the DMs Guild, click on them, and then shop as you normally would. Puts a couple of copper pieces into our belt pouch, helps us pay for bandwidth, new equipment, and all the other costs of the show. Today, we're talking about the latest Unearthed Arcana article, Gothic Heroes, and then we're discussing the new president of Wizards of the Coast, Chris Cox. Then it's an interview with James D'Amato of the One Shot Podcast Network. It's awesome. We talk a little bit about his podcast, and then we talk about his Kickstarter for Noisy Person Cards, or NPC, an awesome party game that helps you work on character voices that you can use in role-playing games. Let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. How do you name your D&D characters? With me today is Michael Ambyth. Michael Welcome to the roundtable. Tell the listeners out there a little bit about your history with D&D. Sure. Thank you, James. Uh, so I've been playing D&D now for about 16 years, which is nuts. Um, my very first campaign was a second ed campaign where I uh, pledged I would never, ever play D&D again. And then uh, in nine short months, I got invited to play again, and I fell in love with uh, three, three, five and have uh, never looked back, so it's been an absolute blast. <laughs> I, you pledged to never play second just because it was so freaking complicated? Um, sure. It was also because um, I was uh, locked in a uh, residence hall lounge, um, and we played for 12 hours from 6 in the evening to 6 in the morning, <laughs> and at about 7.30, my first-level mage had run out of spells, and the sixth-level party had me walking backwards with oil and a torch to light the hallway on fire. And then uh, it was uh, pretty boring from there on out because we never rested and I never got my spells back. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Not not a great introduction, but certainly glad you came back. Uh, so, Michael, how do you name your D&D characters? Well, I am notorious for uh, atrocious names of my characters. Um, but... I would say generally for my player characters, uh, I am really particular about thinking about their origin. You know, if you think about where, you know, your name comes from, mm -hmm. it's, you know, your parents' origin or something that they were into. And so I always have that thought when I'm naming my character to figure out what is the, what is the culture of their race? What would it sound like? You know, would it be more guttural? Would it be quick? Would it be long? And so, you know, I always go that route. Um, to to naming my character and trying to fit it with the culture that 
he or she grew up in or his or her race, you know, was involved in. <laughs> nice, nice. I think that's a great way to, to do it, to come up with stuff. And I feel you on the, on the, it sounds like you're implying that maybe on the DM side of things, when you need to come up with a name on the fly, I too just lean hard into the worst name I can possibly think of, uh, because I know that's where it's going anyway, so I might as well own it. <laughs> yep, I do the same thing. I'm glad I'm not alone on that one. <laughs> Uh, and also with us is Seth Zolan. Seth, welcome to the roundtable. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your experience with D&D? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, my first experience was actually with Michael. He, I came to work at uh, a uh, higher education institution that we both worked at, and uh, I had never played before, and we had bonded over Magic the Gathering, and then he was like, oh, if you like that, you'll love this other Thing that we do, and I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. And then um, that was probably eight years ago now, um, and I've been playing ever since. So introduced during the fourth ed when it was first coming out, and they were like, oh, you'll love this. This new edition is just coming out, so we're all learning it new, not realizing that they would all dig in and learn every min-max, every, <laughs> every rule, everything. And I was just like, I just want to sit down and play. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, and I think I'm still kind of that guy in the party who's like, can we just have a good time? Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I've been playing with them for eight years, and I'm, I'm probably on my, like, fourth or fifth campaign with the same group, so uh, enjoying it now for, for, for a long time. <laughs> well, luckily, fifth makes it a little easier to be the guy who just wants to sit down and, and play. So um, it's not <laughs> there's not quite as many advantages for the min maxers. So, and we should mention that uh, the same uh, higher learning institution is where I met both of you. Uh, so it's exciting to have you guys on the roundtable today, Seth. How do you name your D and D characters? Um, well, I've done a couple different things. Um... A lot of times I, I go for, like, pop the DM, uh, try to get them to laugh. So, like, my first uh, major campaign was a, a friend of ours, uh, Jeff, and we both had a real passion for Firefly. So, as I was writing my backstory, I named everyone in my backstory, including myself, after a character in Firefly. So, my character's name is Daryl, which after Daryl Book, um, Shepard Book in, in, the, in the show, uh, I had a character named Kaylee, and a character, like, every single character came direct from that, and then every time in the campaign that a character came up whose name was from Firefly, I knew it had something to do with me, because Jeff would throw those in every <laughs> single So that was that, and then um, lately I've been using language as my basis, so um, in the most current campaign, um, the, the, where my character from has a kind of um, Swahili kind of uh, uh, basis, so I did some research and I was, a, I'm a Warforged fighter, so I did, I looked and I used Google Translate to come up with, like, what would a metal defender be? And my character's name is Chuma Kuntatea. Um, nice. So I just kind of used Google Translate and figuring out, okay, what language is most applicable to wherever I am in a world? What would my character's name be? It's like, what would describe my character? So I'm a metal defender. And that's where <laughs> I came up with that from. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah, I like to turn to Latin a lot uh, for the names of my characters, uh, mostly because I studied it and I want to feel like it's useful for something. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I studied it and I didn't go into medicine, so <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't get a lot of use in the television production world, um, so it's uh, it's good here. So, guys, today we're talking about the latest unearthed Arconic article, Gothic Hero. This is clearly meant to sit alongside Ravenloft uh, and the Curse of Strahd storyline that just came out from Wizards of the Coast. We have a lot of uh, cool things. We've got some races. we got some new class builds. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is the Revenant subrace. Uh, the Revenant, as many people may know, because it's already a monster in the Monster Manual. It was a race in 4th edition. Essentially, uh, you're an undead who has come back and you're thirsting for revenge against those who wronged you in life. Um, and you have this final critical task of taking revenge that has been left unfinished. Uh, what I love about this 
race is that you apply it to a, an existing race. Um, and so the examples they give here, you can be a human revenant, a dragonborn revenant, or a tiefling revenant. Uh, and then you sort of get all of these other adjustments based on that. Uh, you can't heal yourself, uh, or magic doesn't heal you quite as well. But when you die, uh, you know, in 24 hours, you come back to life uh, unless, you know, and, and even if your body is destroyed, it reforms. Um, so it again, 5th edition has all been in service to the this greater idea of story. Everything kind of has a story reason, every mechanic. Um, and it seems like we're seeing that again with this Revenant sub-race. Uh, and so I'm wondering what you guys are thinking. Uh, Michael, why don't we start with you? Uh, I, I love it. Um, so I am extremely story-based when I play. Um, and in just reading the different uh, sub-races and the racial adjustments, I was coming up with backstories for the game that I'm running, for future campaigns that I probably never play in for the 900 characters I could bank. Um, I, I absolutely love this concept. Um, I'm sad that a dwarf and an elf aren't here, but that's all right. I'm sure they're coming. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, I absolutely love this concept. I love the dynamic nature that fifth that allows for this type of stuff. Um, you know, again, hopefully with the control that it doesn't power creep up. Um, and this, I don't feel like did or has, um, you know, and while I agree, I think that this is very flavored toward the Ravenloft crowd at this point, um, I think it's extremely easy to put into any other campaign, um, you know. And I, I, I love the concept of the, the, the nature of the ability to come back um, or have more of a purpose. And I just, I love it. I love things like this. I could see this all day long. Yeah, and one of the things I love as a DM is I have a new option for bringing back a character who dies other than the old raise dead, resurrection, reincarnate's always a fun one, right? Um, but this gives you kind of an extra option there uh, for a character who dies if the player wants to bring them back and you're cool with it, like, here's another way to do it, right? Um, so exactly. It's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, Seth, what did you think of The Revenant? Uh, I'm pretty much in the same boat as Michael. I thought it was awesome. Um, I like uh, all the things that he talks about. I, I, I like, I really do in uh, the same boat where I can't wait for the full version, not just the playtest article where you can apply this to different races, um, more than just the three options they kind of gave you. I like the idea of having the DM assigning a goal and giving them, giving a, a purpose to a character. I like the idea of the chase. Um, that there, it gives a focus to a character who may not have a focus otherwise, um, or a character who's maybe already achieved whatever, like whatever backstory you've written, they've already achieved it, and you don't know where to take the character from here on out. This is something a DM could possibly use to be to give the character another life, another purpose. Um, I also thought it was interesting to like because all of the the goals were kind of creature based. So in my head, I was thinking about the opportunities to have, like, the goal be less about a creature, but maybe there's uh, something that needs to be returned to your people, like an item that was stolen and you were you died in the process of it being stolen. And your reason for coming back is to right this wrong that was done to your people or to return this item to where it goes. So, like, the idea of you is just your soul can't rest because there's work to be done and not necessarily revenge on a particular character or person or a group, but there's something that you must do in order for your soul to go down. Uh, I thought that there's just a lot of story implications there that you that go beyond just what's in the playtest. Exactly. Yeah, you're not you're not just out to kill people, right? Which is a great way to bring back a character who is maybe on a mission with a group to save the world, or um, you know, or if a character from the start is a revenant, it, it gives a kind of cool reason for uh, for a revenant to to be adventuring with some other adventurers. You know that that character can kind of be a hook that gets the rest of the characters in too. Um, we should mention Michael Robbins, uh, who is friend of you guys has been on the show before uh also sent me uh he was going to be on this podcast but he canceled last minute uh he sent me a document with some of his thoughts uh and one of the things that uh that he brought up which i think is a interesting point and is also a thing that uh that a guy like michael robbins would think of which is why it's great to have him on podcasts like this is he said the resurrection power seems rife for abuse and then puts in quotes, here, take my gear while I run into the bad guy room with a bomb. 
so uh so be wary uh michael i guess if michael robbins wants to play a <laughs> revenant character <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll watch out for it it's actually really funny because i was gonna i was gonna bring that up there's some cool heroic things that can be done with that 24 hours after your death you come back thing but it could easily be abused i was gonna bring that same point up yeah and i didn't think of that at all <laughs> you know, I mean, the the other piece that I was thinking too, you know, is the human revenant seems to get an extra stat point that they wouldn't have gotten as a human. You know, as a human, you're getting those two stat points, but then you're also getting the con increase. So, again, that that oh, that type of stuff always concerns me, just because you know players can feel that it's unfair that. You know, they died, maybe they did something wrong, or the consequence of them dying was now they get a, a, a better character. Again, if that's super important, and in Fifth Dead, stats mean something a heck of a lot more than I think, to me, they've ever meant. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I'm, you know, that concerns me a little as well. I guess from a perspective of what they're saying is, uh, because a human gets a boost to all ability scores, um, I think what they're saying is you only get to boost up two, two. instead of all okay. of them. Yeah. All right, so okay, so I misread that. So okay, I think I think it is uh, it is some difficult wording there for sure. Yeah, you know, because I was thinking the same thing too. Like you know, the again, I I assume that it was a you lose your draconic increases, but you gain the strength and the increase the charisma boost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think that that could be worded a little clear clearer. Just to again to you know, you know, I've seen players, not the group that I'm with now, but I've seen players, you know really, you know, well, this is what the rules say in there because it's benefiting them and that scares me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I think what you're saying applies, but if you're using, that's only, it, it's, it depends on whether or not you're using the variant human traits, because if you are, then you only get the two plus the skill trait and the feat trait. Whereas if you're not, then it's the plus one to all. Yeah, but you're right. And, and the revenant removes the skills, the skill trait and the feat trait. So, you know, again, I, I mean, the feat trait you know, feats again in fifth ed are, you know, they're like, I want 500 of them, you know, so I, I can understand, you know, losing that can be bad. The monster hunter fighter archetype. Uh, so the monster hunter um, is an expert at dealing with supernatural threats. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm thinking Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of fighter here. Uh, you get a, uh, the superiority dice um, that seem to come standard with most of the fighter archetypes after the player's handbook was printed. Um, you get some bonus proficiencies, and you get some like sort of quasi supernatural powers uh, in addition to some cool stuff that you can do with your superiority dice. Uh, I'm wondering what you guys think about how the Monster Hunter stacks up against the other ones. Do you like the story for it? Do you want to play one? Uh, Seth, let's start with you. Uh, Well, I'm currently playing a fighter champion in Michael's campaign. Um, And as I was reading this, I was thinking offline we may need to have a conversation about going from a champion to this because there are just some really cool things about it. I like the use of superior, uh, superiority dice here. Um, it's very similar to the Battle Master in the way it uses them. And like a couple of them are even straight out of, you know, very, it's in the, the first bullet here about um, making a weapon attack um, and being able to add it to the attack roll is the precision attack from the Battle Master. Um, so it is similar, um, but I like that it's a little more combat focused and um, uh, the, the mysticism aspect of it, of being able to do protection from evil, uh, detect magic. Um, there's just some really cool options here that I really like. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of got, it's monster slayer ability is a little similar to the paladin smite, right? Which is kind of yeah. cool. And um, at third level, you get a bunch of stuff. You get hunter's mysticism, you get these bonus proficiencies, and you get combat superiority dice, um, which maybe is and a little much. But... And another language, which is interesting too the abyssal celestial and infernal um it's interesting um but but I, there's definitely some you know i with this one thing with, even with the battle master there are so many commanderish like little ways of using superior dice not little but like there's there are just so many options i i like just having a few stronger options as opposed to having 20 
options where, okay, this one can knock them prone, this one can do this, this one can do this, like give me a shorter list, but that I could use in a lot more circumstances, that appeals to me. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, having a, a shorter list um, also makes it a little more manageable if you're the kind of player who doesn't like to have too much going on, you know. And again, the shorter list may be a product of the Unearthed Arcana article, uh, so it's hard to say. Uh, Michael Ambyth, what did you think about the Monster Hunter? Yeah, so again, the, I think storylines can easily be built around this. Um, you know, I I... I honestly felt I so I read it over and then I thought to myself, well, I must have missed something. I kept waiting for it to there to be a point where I chose a monster type, uh, an aberration, uh, a fae, whatever the case may be, and I got those. My bonuses were really geared toward that, um, where this is just kind of like a, I'm going to kick your butt, um, no matter who you are. <laughs> type of, you know, I'm a I'm not just a monster hunter. I'm just kind of a hunter of people. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was I, I was a little concerned. That, you know, I think D8s. That's a that's a big thing to start at with third. That's a lot. You know, mm-hmm. that's a lot to add to to a die. Um, you know, on average, you're going to be rolling threes and fours. So, you know, that's a lot. That's a huge plus um, to be adding. And yet, you can only do it a certain amount of times. You know, so. Uh, you know, I found it, again, um, to be a little overpowered, at least what I would have expected. So, Seth, if that answers your question about our campaign, uh, we can talk a little more offline. Um, you know, um, but again, you know, I, I think the storyline piece is is obviously easily there. You know, building a story about hunting. I mean, heck, it, it almost marries very easily with the Revenant, you know, like I come back from the dead and I'm a monster hunter of the people that I'm hunting, you know, um, I feel like it's, you're, they're attached at the hip. Um, but, you know, again, you know, I think, I think for the fighter, I, I think a little about what has been missing from the fighter that, that I've read is they were very defender focused. Um, again, I felt so, and and this at least allows them to hold their own against spellcasters who are you know, getting more and more without just adding more attacks, you know, without being a fighter that somehow in six seconds you attack 15 times, you know, um, this allows you to, to kind of add that without without adding some bizarre level of, you know, crazy greatsword wielding that um, that doesn't seem to fit with a fireball. It is it is cool to see something different uh, going on there. I love the idea of the Revenant being combined with this class. It makes me really makes me think of Buffy. Then uh, spoilers, exactly. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> like, like an angel or a spike, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that would be so cool. That would be yeah. so cool. Um, well, then I, we should talk about this next class, uh, the Inquisitive, uh, which is a rogue subclass. Um, inquisitive, I really, really like for story reasons um you know it's the the person who excels at rooting out secrets and unraveling mysteries um so to sort of continue the buffy theme you know these are these are the watchers um who are who are figuring stuff out uh you know um i guess they're a little more boots on the ground than your typical watcher because they're they're getting in the middle of it but it is really yeah yeah they're Giles. They're not necessarily the other watchers, but you know, Giles Giles fits in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and Wesley, right? They're the they're the rogue, yeah. if you will. Well, huh? Angel huh? Wesley. Uh Buffy Wesley was definitely not an inquisitor. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. That's true. When he becomes a rogue demon hunter and wears leather hats, exactly. that's, that's the Exactly. <laughs> uh so what did you guys think of the rogue uh inquisitive? Michael, let's start with you. I loved it. Uh you know, I, I I guess I, I, I throw back to 3-5 sometimes, and I have a thought about, you know, this would be a cool player um, class or player um, archetype, and this would be a cool NPC. To me, this is very NPC, like meeting the the gruff, you know, um, old, uh, you know, uh, human who has been an inquisitive and he's a rogue. Like, it would be a cool NPC for them to meet. Um, you know, obviously I think it would be cool to play, but I, 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 this to me leans very much towards a really cool grizzled NPC that they meet or that they're fighting that's maybe torturing or is, you know, some sort of cult leader, um, some sort of cult 
um, torturer or something like that, um, mm -hmm. you know, or like the, the, um, like in the city, that's the, you know, the, the rogue group, um, the thieves guild inquisitive, you know, and he's kind of like the face of the inquisitive uh, group, the second in command type of guy. That's kind of what I saw with this. Um, you know, I, I'm always interested. I'm also always interested in, in things that, take charisma and do something with it. <laughs> um, and I feel like this, this class, this uh, archetype did that, you know, it takes a stat that I think people generally are like, Oh, I don't need it. Peace out. Um, and kind of does something with it, you know, in hopes that it'll get used. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to see like, Hey, he's going to use some wisdom. He's going to use some charisma. It's, um, you know, to, to see that within a martially, build uh exactly. is is really really cool i like that a lot yeah. and i do like that it's kind of um you know the insightful fighting ability the ability to watch someone and then get to use your sneak attack is really cool i like that a lot <laughs> i agree you know the, the, the biggest thing you know that, that that i would see as a player that would be tough with this is just because it relies on so many stats mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes to you know to build a character that isn't you know, again, it, you know, Seth can attest to this. I think in our group, there we're a min-maxi group, and so it's, you know, how can I build the best character? You know, well, I get every group is not like that. Um, and we are not always like that, but we are generally like that. <laughs> you know, it's tough to, to have, you know, three or four stats that you really need to keep decent to be decent at what you're doing, you know, and not just have a monster or someone you know, make a save or, um, you know, or not really do any damage or not be able to hit, that gets tough and frustrating as a player. So I do, I do get worried sometimes, although I think it's cool. I, some, I get worried that players will get frustrated if powers, you know, the cool powers that they get don't work because their, their stats can't sustain it. People have that those multi-attribute characters, right, that they get. They're like, oh, man, people get nervous around paladins and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely see that. In fact, Michael Robbins um, in his uh, information sheet has said that that is one of his biggest complaints with this character is that rogues aren't likely to have a really high wisdom. The fact that it's pushing for uh, a high, a lot of wisdom insight checks and things like that um, makes him cautious about this. Uh, so, uh, Seth, what did you think of the Rogue Inquisitive? Like Mike, I like it. I, um, I really like the the balance between combat focus and out of combat focus. That there's more just to, there's more to do than just be a combat. So, so, so where Mike Robbins' concerns were. Um, I think maybe if you if you know you're going to be doing the insight and the perception and focus more on your wisdom, yeah, you might not be as great in combat, but in story, you're going to be the guy that everyone looks to. So I, I think this is cool. Um, it's funny you mentioned um, Buffy. When I was reading this, the, the, the thing that kept walking, uh, getting into my head was Rick Deckard from Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> like that, like how, the Harrison Ford image was just in my head. Um, as, as this was kind of going through as, like, that type of puzzle detective. Um, one of my favorite campaign settings is Eberron, so the Eberron Inquisitives and, like, the detectives in that world, this fits right into there. Um, so there's a lot of, of, of cool, cool stuff. And I think it balances pretty well with the other uh, roguish archetypes um, in terms of what you get at different levels. Um, you know, being able to find hidden creatures or objects, knowing kind of being able to sense that there's an illusion in your presence once you're at 13th, like, I may not know exactly what's going on, but I know something in this room isn't right, and I just have an innate ability to register that. That's such a cool thing to play with, um, and it's a challenge for the DM to write things the character has to, like, that make use of that for that character. Because it isn't good if your DM doesn't write any illusions into the story, but um, if, that's, if that's there, then it gives something for that character to kind of see through. Um, and there's a lot of options with that. And certainly if, if your DM isn't writing towards your story, uh, you've probably got a, a little bit of a bigger problem on your hands, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an absolutely great point, Seth. That, you know, it, it, uh, this game and these, these things especially 
know, I joked, we can definitely talk, by the way, more about uh, Monster Hunter, but, you know, the idea, now I feel like I'm being on the spot because I'm his DM and I, you know, I wasn't as understanding. Um, but, you know, it, it's important. It's important in this game. You know, I think something that I'm always reminding my group about is, you know, this is supposed to be fun. If your character isn't fun, then talk to me. Let's make it fun, or I don't, you know, make another character. I'll fit another character, and your character can die. It can go away. You know, the whole point of this is it's a game, and if it becomes too serious or it's boring to you, then your character is your game, so then let's figure out how to build that character. And I, this Revenant, I mean, um, the Revenant, excuse me, the Inquisitive really allows for that. Wow, that is well said. That is some... Some Dr. Oz on D&D kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's really. right. That's right. you got to get real. Or is that, is that, uh, is that Dr. Phil? <laughs> I may be mixing my doctors here. It's all right. I don't, yeah, I don't know my, my television doctors very well, uh, but I know my television judges. Um, so <laughs> that's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> Invite me back for that one. Yeah, yeah. That. Down with Judge Judy is another – that's a whole other thing we'll get to. <laughs> uh, so we want to know what people out there think. What do you think of the Gothic Heroes Unearthed Arcana article? Hit us up over at thetomeshow.com or at facebook.com slash the tome show and guys real quick before we go we've got one other topic i'd love to hit up real fast today while we are recording this podcast they've announced a new president uh for wizards of the coast uh greg Leeds has stepped down and chris cox who is a microsoft executive uh is going to come over and be the president of wizards of the coast now um it seems like uh you know they they talk a lot about greg Leeds had tremendous contributions magic the gathering is more popular than ever more people are playing it uh which is great and that the plan with chris cox is to maybe beef up the digital side of things now we assume that uh mr cox will probably be spending a lot of time with magic the gathering that is the big money maker for wizards of the coast after all but i'm wondering what do you guys think of this announcement and do you think it means maybe good bad news the same business as usual for D and um i'm kind of hoping it leads to maybe some better digital tools uh so and i'm sure as i say this skype will crash while we're talking uh so <laughs> yeah obviously my first thought when i read it was um that hopefully this would lead to more online tools virtual gaming like maybe some proprietary you know virtual gaming cups within boxy um and some of some other uh some other things there because it seems like his his, his experience is in platform building. So the more you can build an expensive platform for D&D, I hope that it becomes a focus for the, uh, for the world. Yeah, yeah I, think- I, I have to agree. I had the same thought. And, you know, I, I mean, I remember back in fourth ed, they came out with the character builder. They came out with the encounter builder. Um, and I'm honestly shocked that, that nothing like that has been talked about. You know, in this digital day and age, it's so easy to build. Now, I say it's so easy. I couldn't do it. So please don't <laughs> attack me or James if you're listening. And um, you're saying, well, if it's so easy, why don't you do it, Michael? You don't want an app that I create. But, um, you know, I feel like someone with the know-how could, you know, easily build an app that that has algorithms in it to take everything and build a character sheet. You know, mm-hmm. build, um, you know... Um, encounters, you know, that type of stuff. And I'm hoping that that's what this means, um, at least on some level, that they, they put some focus. You know, I, I think for us, for our group, we've, you know, I've been playing with the same group really for the past 15 years. We started when I was in college. We played in person. You know, we, we remained playing in person when I moved to Philly and they were still in New Jersey. When I moved back up to North Jersey and they were still in Central Jersey, you know, we we played in person when Michael Robbins moved down to Maryland and we stayed in New Jersey. You know, I, I really – and then to make it work, we started playing online. And mm-hmm. I think that that's where the game is going. That's where it needs to go to continue to be successful because, you know, I can tell you my 10-year-old son – while he loves the books, it would be a heck of a lot cooler for him to sit down and make a character on an app on his tablet or on a computer. And I, I think we draw a heck of a lot 
bigger crowd coming in, starting new, playing this game. If it wasn't dusty old books with thousands of pages, but it was an app that I sat down and said, I want to play a dwarf. And I chose a picture of a dwarf and it gave me the stat boost right there. And I, you know, and I did all of that. I, I really think that the, the game needs to move in that arena or else, you know, it has a, a big potential of, of never really gaining more people. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You've you've got to stay with modern technology. It's the only way for any industry, not just gaming, you know. Um, and it, it it's funny because Wizards of the Coast used to have that plan. When they first launched 5e, they were talking a little bit about this Dungeonscape thing yeah. that yeah. was going to come out. And that partnership was abandoned. And now that same company is making a product called Playbook with uh, Paizo um, for Pathfinder, uh, you know, and it does seem like Paizo, they're, they're with the PDFs, you know, they've been with it for years. You still can't get a PDF of a Wizards product. You can buy everything again at the same price you bought it through Fantasy Grounds, but, you know, it's, it's pricey, it can be a little expensive, that kind of thing, when Roll20 is there for, for free. So I do think, you know, WotC needs to, to get with the times. I hope that is what this means, uh, that they will... Uh, focus a little bit more on the digital efforts with D&D. You know, if we didn't have a ton of source books come out, but had a bunch of great digital tools come out, I think that would actually be better for the hobby and help grow the hobby. Um, You know, get more people to go out and buy those books if they could buy them as PDFs and and that kind of thing. So I agree with you 100%. And I think it also drives traffic, like either to their website or to wherever their platforms are with how they're communicating with their clients. So when I first got in and we were doing fourth ed, I bought my D&D Insider account and I religiously looked up articles and, and things like that. Now I don't do that quite as much. I, I'm not, our camera is probably the only feature that I still look for. Um, and so, you know, if you build in things like that, build in um, back issues of Dungeon and Dragon, you know, the, uh, the magazines and, you know, really build your online presence. Um, to provide not just current tools, but access to to their library and their history. There's a lot you could do with that. Great. Well, we definitely want to know what our listeners out there think about this as well. So again, hit us up over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com or at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. And before we go, uh, we want to know where our listeners can find our great panel today. Uh, Seth, where can people find you on the internet, if at all? Uh, I'm not that active on the internet. I have a, a my Facebook account and my um, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is anymore. I, don't, I haven't <laughs> logged on in probably a year. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm not I'm not Twitter active. It's Seth Darren on Facebook. And that's pretty much my biggest social outlet. Awesome, awesome. And uh, Michael Ambeith, where can people find you? Sure, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at Pendinor P N. D-I-N-O-R-E, so that's at Pendinor. And a quick story, Pendinor is the last name of my very first 3-5 D&D character that got me into really playing the game. And it's my handle on everything. So you want to play PlayStation with me? Hit me up there. You want to stalk me? Hit me up there. <laughs> there you go. It's also his password and username to all of his accounts. That's correct. So, my bank okay. account is uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and my password is Pendinor. Uh, so give a call to Bank of America and take all my money. There you go. One, two, three, four, five. That's just some kind of thing an idiot to put on his luggage. <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the roundtable today. James, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, everybody. I am here with James D'Amato. James, welcome to the roundtable today. James, thank you so much for having me on the show. Ah, oh, it's great to have you. It is a pleasure. James, you are the producer, creator of this wonderful podcast, The One Shot Podcast, and you're here to talk to us about your Kickstarter today. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about the One Shot Podcast. For those who haven't heard of us, uh, One Shot is an actual play program, uh, which means we record people actually playing games of role-playing games. And what made One Shot a little bit unique and different when we started out was that uh, we were taking a tour of multiple RPG systems. We would run a one-shot game in a new RPG system every month with a new group of players. Uh, That model has sort of like 
populated out, and now there are a lot more shows like us out there, but we are still one of the only shows that has improvisers uh, playing it. Uh, so they are all comedians who are trained to perform in the way that we play role-playing games, sort of collaboratively making things up and working together to, you know, either go through a narrative or just do some fun bits. Uh so one shot, uh, the point of it, like when I started out, was to make a show that showed off more than just Dungeons & Dragons, because Dungeons & Dragons, while it is like a deep, deep love of mine, and it introduced me to all of this role-playing, uh, it's not the only game out there. And because it's the biggest name and like the only household name in role-playing, uh, it's a lot easier for people to find that and for that to be their essential entire view of the role-playing hobby. And I kind of wanted people to branch out from that, because if you're like me, you love D&D, but it, like, fantasy is not your favorite genre overall, and there are tons of things that you'd like to play around with. Sure, and from a comedic perspective, it allows you to be fresh every episode. You get to change up the genre, you get to change up your rule set, you know, um, and some... Uh, rule sets, I feel like, are more encouraging for interesting, dramatic storytelling. You know, D&D is, at its core, a combat simulator, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And combat's fun to play, not the most fun to listen to, although you guys make it very entertaining. <laughs> we, we try our hardest on that. Yeah, I, I'd say D&D, uh, a lot of people, like, especially in the OSR community, uh, get a little bit offended and defensive when... I start referring to rules light systems as story games because I, I think the implication that a lot of people see there is that story game implies that when you're playing a game that is more traditionally like D&D &D or more mechanics heavy or more OSR oriented, you are not playing out a story. And that's, that's not true at all. Uh, it's just... If there is a narrative, it's riding a lot more heavily on the GM and the players to collaborate and create that together without sort of guiding constructs of rules. Uh, as you pointed out, the D&D &D engine is really a combat simulator because it evolved out of wargaming, and that's something that every edition of Dungeons & Dragons has paid homage to, is that wargaming tradition. Uh, so when we branch out and play different systems, we are playing a lot of systems that are more oriented towards supporting our creative freedom and guiding the narrative of these different uh, games that we're playing, uh, which for our style of play, or for you know most of the players that I have on, is very effective in supporting what we're trying to do. It's one of those things you, you take offense at first, but you got to hear the whole argument first. Uh, and we love all games, right? So it's not like you're you're putting D and D down by saying another game has more story mechanics. That's just the truth. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's D and D has a wonderful way of telling stories too. Um, I don't think it lends itself as well to podcasting because you're listening to it play out rather than hearing it in retrospect. And I got to say, some of the best gaming stories that I've ever heard were from people who had played a long session of like early edition D&D &D and had a bizarre series of unbelievable roles put them in crazy circumstances. And a lot of the stuff that we put on one shot, I think, is something that you have, like, to really appreciate it, you have to have been there for it. And thankfully, uh, because we're recording it, you can. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and I think, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about improv. So, uh, you know, I have a degree in theater and uh, know uh, a little bit about doing improv and stuff like that. And we had uh, John Gabris. Uh, on the podcast to to talk about sort of his influences in D and D and the comedy that he does. Um, you're in Chicago. It is a yes. prime prime place to find some great funny improvisers. Um, well, we invented it here. <laughs> you really, really did. And so, uh, you know, when you are talking about the the principles of improv, you know, what are some of those principles that people can bring into any role-playing game, really, when you're playing? You know, I think, um, obviously, the, the big one everybody knows, right, is, is the yes and or, mm -hmm. or the offer and accept principle. Uh, what do you see that, that really... People who have no training in acting and have never played a role-playing game, what can they bring in with them when they sit down at the table to make it more fun? 
I think rather than something like yes and, which is an item that like, like yes and is something that can easily be misinterpreted and <laughs> misunderstood yeah. by people. Yeah. Um, I think the best piece of advice that I got in any sort of improv thing that applies directly to gaming is make your scene partner's choices important. And for a GM, that's, you know, make your player's choices important, or for a player, make the other players or the GM's choices important. And what I mean by important is you want to react to and build off of the things that were just said. Uh, you know, if a GM is telling you that there's a terrifying monster in front of you, it's more gratifying for them if you are reacting in a manner that, like, follows along with that narrative that they were playing with. Or if uh, a player comes to you with a backstory telling you about a rival that has been, you know, uh, since childhood messing with them and is a continual theme in that character's life, you know, making that gift, that bit of information that they gave you about their character, taking that, incorporating it to, into the game and, you know, helping build out the idea that they have in their head is one of the most gratifying things that you can do for anybody. Uh, people like to feel like their ideas are meaningful and appreciated. And when you take information that somebody comes to you with and you build on it and give it back to them, uh, it's one of the coolest feelings in the world. And it's so easy to do to listen to somebody else, take in, think about it, and add your own part to it uh, to expand it. It's great advice for any sort of creative relationship that you listen to what the other person has to say. In fact, it's great advice for any relationship, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that if you listen to what people have to say and then don't intentionally um, you know, block what they're doing or sort of ignore it in service of what you think is a, a better or funnier or uh, you know, more obnoxious idea, uh, you all get to tell a great story together if you work together. Um, and I, I really like that. I think that's a great piece of advice. And it sort of, I think, segues us nicely into your Kickstarter. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. So uh, my creative partner, Kat Cool, and I are kickstarting a party game called Noisy Person Cards. And Noisy Person Cards is a game designed to help players and GMs develop new character voices to bring to the table. Uh, one of the things uh, that we do on OneShot, because a lot of us are actors and voice actors, is we really try to get into character at the table. And because we're in a purely audio medium, one of the best ways to do that is by using character voices. Um, and I've found throughout my years of playing that... Uh, when you play a character who has a character voice, it's more enjoyable not only for yourself, but for the people around you. It creates really memorable characters, and it actually emboldens you to make choices that you wouldn't normally make in games. Uh, so I, I think it's so much fun to play around with this, but I know that voicing a character is not something everyone is immediately comfortable with, which is why we developed Noisy Person Cards as sort of a training exercise that you can do outside of role-playing to make yourself feel more confident with using voices and to help you develop new voices uh, to try out in future games. Sounds like this would also be super, super helpful to GMs. Uh, you know, as a guy who GMs all the time, uh, I do feel like, like, man, I have the same six voices inside of me. <laughs> and they are going to, like, I could never GM a one-shot podcast because it would just be the same six characters showing up in every universe, uh, doing everything, because that's what I'm confident in, you know? Um, so it sounds like this is great for GMs as well, because it sort of will help build your repertoire of, uh, you know, your, your rogues gallery, if you will. Exactly. And, and, like, really that's what we wanted to focus on. We wanted to uh, give GMs a better stable of voices. Uh, so the methodology that we used, it is a party game, similar to games like Cards Against Humanity or Apples to Apples. Uh, there's a judge who will draw a character card, and that could be something like a vampire or a goblin. And... 
the players sitting around the table will have hands full of phrase cards. These are pre-written, pithy one-liners that are, you know, humorous for a fantasy subset of people. Um, you look through your phrase cards for the phrase card that you think best fits the character card that's been drawn, and then you try to read that phrase card in that character's voice, and the judge picks a winner. It's a very simple setup, uh, but, you know, as party games go, it's going to go on, and by the end of the night, you will have created, like, character voices for, you know, 20 different characters that you will just have. And because you will have won some rounds, you'll know that other people appreciate your rendition of certain characters. Nice, nice. I like that a lot. It's an idea generator, too. It's like, hey, I had no idea i do a great vampire voice, so now let me create a vampire adventure to take exactly. advantage of that, you know? <laughs> yeah. There are definitely voices, like, in playtesting that I've walked away with, like, oh, man, I would love to build a little session around that voice so that I could break it out on the show and have fun with it. Um, we tried to uh, make... The, that simple setup a little bit more complex with something that we call descriptors. On the bottom of your phrase cards, if you flip them around, there are short one-word descriptors, or like I guess one to three-word descriptors that you can apply to character cards. So if you're a judge and you draw mummy, and you're like, well, mummy's fun, but it's not the most interesting voice, you can apply a descriptor to it and transform that mummy into an uncomfortably sexy mummy. Uh, which obviously is going to change the way uh, people approach doing the voice at the table and will actually help create a more interesting character. Uh, one thing that we learn in improv is specifics are things that kill with humor. Uh, the more specific you are about the type of thing that you're trying to do, the more people are going to enjoy it. Um, so, like, yeah, it's... Pretty obvious, like, if I told you you were going to do a mummy voice, you'd be like, okay, that's whatever. If you're going to do an uncomfortably sexy mummy voice, like, already you're sort of paying more attention and thinking, like, oh, man, what would that even sound like? Uh, and we use descriptors for a bunch of things. Like, if you're a judge and you're just bored with the choice, like, you can apply a descriptor. It helps you cycle out phrase cards that you either don't feel comfortable reading or just aren't as exciting as other phrase cards, because, like, if you've ever played Cards Against Humanity, you know there are some cards that stick around in your hand and you just hate and you wish you could get rid of them. <laughs> Noisy Person Cards lets you do that. Um, there's also tie-breaking. One thing that I found when I was playing party games is that often if I'm in a judge position and I have to decide between two things, it's too difficult to just write out, go, okay, this one's better than this one. Uh you can start a duel by having both of the people that, like, you can't decide between uh, pulling out one of their descriptors and adding it to any existing descriptors on uh, the mummy. So taking that uncomfortably sexy mummy, if there's a tie between two players, one of them could throw down a descriptor like teenage uncomfortably sexy mummy or... Uh, <laughs> I guess, monotone, uncomfortably sexy mummy. Uh, and whichever one of them pulls off their variation on uncomfortably sexy mummy better wins the round. All these descriptors and the, the fact that you can duel people really makes it kind of a more interesting game than your typical apples to apples or cards against humanity. I dig this game. So you're talking about this fantasy set. Obviously, we all know how Kickstarters go, and sometimes they're very successful and have stretch goals and things like that. Uh, are there other sets in mind if, uh, if you hit certain stretch goals? Uh, so, yes, we do have other sets in mind. Um, however, we are trying to avoid stretch goals on this Kickstarter. One thing that we've learned just from being around the industry is stretch goals are a thing that initially seem very positive because it feels like you are incentivizing people to uh, build up, you know, uh, you're, you're like incentivizing people to put down more money. But, you know, I don't want to put pressure on my existing backers to feel like, oh, if I want this thing, I have to commit more money to this Kickstarter. Because, like, essentially they're just buying a game, and there's only so far you can stretch in buying that game. So what we've set up on our Kickstarter is something that should be familiar to anybody who, you know, saw the 7th C Kickstarter or the Masks Kickstarter. We're focusing on social goals. Uh, so people who back our Kickstarter can 
unlock new things by liking Noisy Person cards on Facebook or following us on Twitter and retweeting an ad for the Kickstarter. Uh, that way, simply by being active and excited about the game and not having to contribute more money and just, you know, telling other people that, hey, I think this game is cool and I would like to see this game happen, you will be able to unlock other things. And we do have, through our social goals, three expansions that we're thinking of. Um, the first is uh, the Space Battles expansion. That is our uh, expansion, which is legally distinct uh, from any uh, space <laughs> opera franchise uh-huh. that you might be excited about right now. Um, <laughs> that would be a 60-card expansion uh, because we don't want to add to uh, the time it takes to fulfill our Kickstarter, and we don't want to be one of those Kickstarters that like promises too much and doesn't have the money to print everything. Uh, we are going to make these expansions available through drive-through cards for print-on-demand when the Kickstarter ships. Uh, these are things that we were planning on doing anyway, but you essentially move our timetable up significantly if you decide if you unlock it through the social goals. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is a superhero-themed expansion. And finally, we have something that we call uh, the Underwater Expansion for Rich. Uh, if, <laughs> if you are familiar with the work of Rich Howard of at course. all. Of course, yeah, he's yeah. been on this podcast a lot, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a great dude, uh, and he is one of the biggest evangelists I've ever met for more adventuring underwater. Uh, and he's constantly insisting like how interesting and exciting it is, so we put together together and expansion of underwater themed cards just for him so if you want to help make that happen uh, <laughs> you simply get more people to back the project and we will do it and release it on the time that npc ships for print on demand so that you can incorporate it into your main set right away if you want Part of the social goals that we're doing is something that, uh, like, is a new idea that we're testing out because a lot of social goal things uh, did stuff where you could just like stuff on Twitter or, you know, uh, follow people on Facebook. Uh, what we decided to add in is, first of all, a puzzle. Um, there is an Easter egg hunt uh, for you to find one of the pieces of art from one of our contributors, uh, Molly Ostertag, from the uh, Strong Female Protagonist webcomic. She's fantastically talented, and pieces that she has contributed to the Noisy Person Cards project are somewhere on the internet. And in order to find them, you have to solve a cryptogram and then follow a <laughs> series of riddles in order to find the art. Uh, <laughs> So check that out if you are the puzzle-solving sort. And we also have something called the Noisy Person Contest. Uh, We are going to give away a free copy of our game to uh, a lucky winner. And the way you can win this is simply by recording a video of yourself saying one of the phrases from our games as a kobold. And that would be, May the great dragon tyrant bless you with his merciful wrath. Um, so you just read that phrase as a cobalt onto uh, a video that you will post to Facebook or Twitter and then email us the link to that video and you'll automatically be entered to win. The cool thing about it is the more people who enter, the better the prize. So right off the bat, you get a free copy of NPC. Um, if 50 people enter, uh, you, Kat and I will be at your disposal to record a 10-second bit of audio uh, to whatever specifications you may have. If 100 people enter, a phrase card featuring the name of your D&D character will be added to the game. And if 5,000 people enter, we will fly you to Chicago for a weekend of gaming with one-shot performers and game designers who are our friends. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, uh, I definitely recommend uh, you know heading over to Noisy Person Cards and getting involved in the Noisy Person Contest. Excellent, excellent. Neil Powell, 
this is your chance to get on the One Shot Podcast. So <laughs> take advantage. Take advantage. <laughs> well, thank you so much, James. Uh, that is a really, really cool idea. I love the fact that there's going to be this enormous, um, you know, kind of treasure hunt across the internet that you've got going on. And the Cobalt contest is hilarious uh, and sounds like it's going to be great. So I imagine this Kickstarter, I'm going to knock on wood for you, but I imagine this Kickstarter is going to be amazing. Uh, and I hope a lot of people check it out. I know that I will be investing in some noisy person cards as soon as the Kickstarter is up. We are talking right now before the Kickstarter has actually launched, but when we uh, when this podcast drops, the Kickstarter is out there for people to check out. Um, if uh, so, so what are sort of the the various pledge levels? Is this one of those Kickstarters where there's a million pledge levels? Is it a more basic like, hey, come buy the game? Is basically what it is. Um, you know, what are we looking at? So our basic pledge levels, uh, we do have a $10 level, which is a print-and-play edition of the game. Uh, right now, we have a publicly available print-and-play set that anybody who's intrigued by the things that we've been talking about here can go out and download the print-and-play set to play at home themselves. Oh, nice, uh, nice. That's awesome. That is about a fifth of the size of the final game. The final game is going to have 500 phrase cards and 100 character cards. Um, but nice. we will have a $10 edition where if you are an EU backer, for instance, we have a lot of listeners in the European Union, and it is egregiously expensive to ship there. We still have shipping options, but the shipping is about the equal to the cost of the game, which I think is ludicrous. So we decided to get together, put together a print-and-play edition. So if you're somebody who is interested in the project, wants the full version of the game, you can back it $10 and just get a digital version of it that you can print out yourself um, and, you know, back it with magic cards and you're good to go. Um, then we have our $30 level. That's the game. Uh, it's $30 to purchase the game. Uh, because Kickstarter now lists shipping separately. If you are in the U.S., shipping is $8. So $38 gets you a physical copy of the game. Then we have a couple options, like if you are somebody who uh, wants to buy the game and have a second copy to like give as a gift, because this should be shipping around December, November. Uh, it's a great way to get uh, your holiday shopping out of the way. Um, so you can buy two copies. And then we have, like, the things that I'm really excited about, uh, which are uh, the, the first one is getting an original piece of art. Uh, our lead artist on this project is a fellow named Kevin Budnick. He's a cartoonist in the Chicago area, and he's fantastically talented. You can go check out the Kickstarter page now and see all of the art that he put together for this project. I really dig his style. He's known for doing autobiographical comics and just drawing scenes from his D&D sessions. Uh, so I, I think all of his art is great. Uh, because he works with pencils and paper, all of the original art that was used to create this project exists as physical copies. So if you want to own one of those pieces of art, you can back um, at a $150 level and get one of those pieces of art. Then at $200, we will write your D&D character's name into one of the phrase cards. So if you have a character who is just fantastically memorable and you know needs to be shown to other people, uh, you can back at that level and we will write them into the game. So ages from now when people are playing NPC, they will be uh, memorializing your character by shouting their name in silly voices. And then finally, we have so many fantastic artists contributing to this project. Uh, people like Jess Fink and Eric Colossal and Will Kirkby, uh, just who are fantastically talented artists. And if you back at a $300 level, you can get one of these artists to draw you or your D&D character into the game. I would kill for some art by these people of my characters. I should have taken advantage of it and just had them draw my characters for, for the game. But uh, it's an idea that we came up with, like, after everything was done. And, man, these, the, like, these are all just my favorite artists. That's what I did is went out and asked my favorite people to contribute to the project. So 
they're really cool. They're really cool people. Um, you can check out the links to all of their work on the Kickstarter. I definitely recommend uh, getting one of these pieces of art if you can. Nice, nice. That sounds amazing. Uh, so this is a really cool project, and it's sort of you, – you can put a little in and get a lot out of it. So 600 cards is a ton of, uh, of, of cards that you're offering to people for 10 bucks yeah, for print-on-demand. That's amazing. That's a really, really great deal. Sounds like it's fun. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunities to immortalize yourself or your D&D character within the game as well if you've got more mm-hmm. money to spend. Um, so – uh, so if people want to know more about the Kickstarter or more about you or more about the One Shot podcast, where should they go? Uh, so if you want to find Noisy Person cards on Kickstarter, since that is the thing that I am immediately promoting, uh, you can go onto kickstarter.com and search for Noisy Person cards. We are the only project with that ridiculous name. <laughs> That's excellent. And we'll also link it over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com if people want to find it there as well. If you want to know more about uh, our publishing company, which is actually putting out the game, uh, that is Paracosm Press. um, And that is P-A-R-A-C-O-S-M Press. uh, And you can check out our website there at paracosmpress.com. And all the information for Noisy Person Cards can be found at paracosmpress.com slash NPC. there you'll be able to find the free print-and-play edition if you're curious about the game but don't know if you want to back it yet. Uh, and as for OneShot, you can find uh, the OneShot podcast at oneshotpodcast.com, and that will take you to the OneShot podcast network. If you're listening to The Tome Show, you know that RPG podcasts are great and that you already can't get enough of them. Uh, we have a lot of great actual play and interview programs over at OneShot, uh, including Campaign, our ongoing campaign of Edge of the Empire with improvisers. It is different than other actual play games that you've heard. I can promise you that. I don't know. I don't know if you would think it's better, but you definitely would see it as different. Um, <laughs> And we've also got other wonderful programs like Talking Tabletop, Backstory, and Modifier. So please check those out. Um, And if you really love our network, you can always head over to Patreon uh, and support uh, One Shot Podcast on Patreon. Uh, We have a lot of supporters there, a lot of bonus content for anybody who's interested in that. Uh, So, yeah. And if you want to get in contact with me directly, uh, the best way is through Twitter. You can reach out to me at OneShotRPG. Excellent, excellent. Well, we will link everything for people over in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Uh, it's your one-stop shop for all things one-shot podcast, noisy person cards, and uh, James DeMano. So, uh, James, thank you so much for coming on the roundtable today. Oh, James, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And before we go, it's time for our DMs Guild Pick of the Week. This week's highlighted DMs Guild product comes from Sean Wicked. It is the D&D 5E Player Cheat Sheet. The Player Cheat Sheet is a pay-what-you-want product, but you should definitely give something for it because it is awesome. It's got everything a player can do on their turn in one quick sheet. It's a handy reference. It covers just about everything that you can do in the PHB. It's perfect for beginners and for experienced players. It's got combat, hiding, cover, jumping, conditions, exhaustion table, and more. Rules for everything. Print it out while you're waiting for your turn. It's pay what you want. There's a direct link to the D&D 5e player cheat sheet from Sean Wicket over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. I'd like to thank my panelists, Michael and Seth. And I'd like to thank my guest, James D'Amato. All right, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games there. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like this show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. It really helps us a bunch. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.